0: Episode of Inside the Recording Studio. And I am Jody Whitesides. With me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. But with us in addition to that is Mr. Mike Green. But before we get to Mike, Chris, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, Jody. I'm excited to talk to Mike here. So I say let's not waste any time on me and just (laughs) jump right in. All
2: right. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great. Got to give the people what they want, so I understand. Get right to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I what the, other reason is there go, for go this to store of the show. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So to I kick it, it was, well, go ahead. I was going to start with um, how you guys doing.
1: <laughs> well, really you know, bring we that can energy. only go up from there right so it's, that's it's, that's yeah. right
2: I, I'll, I'll start from a low place and then the expectations won't and be too high
1: there you great. go we we'll just maintain that through the the show <laughs> and uh, then end with a huh, that was all right <laughs> yeah. so i'm gonna so kick how off are you mike you good question. yeah he just
0: said i that.
2: am doing great been looking forward to this by the way
0: nice it, awesome. it, I,
2: I, you know i've been listening to your show i really enjoy it, it, it it's a really good podcast Well, I think the
0: comment that we heard that we want to turn into like a phrase for the show is, it's kind of fun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I wasn't quite that excited the way I said it. It was more, "Eh, it's kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. You need to have the proper delivery. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Otherwise, people get the wrong idea. That's right. Context.
1: We don't want that. So. Like we usually start with guests here, Mike. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself because obviously Jody and I know who you are and what you do, but for people that are unaware of what Mike Green does, please fill us in. Well,
2: I've been pretty fortunate that I came to LA. I wanted to be a rock star. As we all did, right? As, as (laughs) As I think we all did. Yeah. That dream did not happen. I wasn't a band. We were assigned to MCA, but they okay. never released the record, so... Oh, you got uh, shelved? No. <laughs> well, that's awful. <laughs> they have no taste. No, no taste. None whatsoever. But the good thing about that was that during the recording process of that, we were produced by a guy named Arthur Barrow, who used to play with Frank Zappa, and he's done a number of things since then. So and we he recorded probably knows
0: it. what he's doing.
2: He probably knows what he's doing, yeah. He's a really talented guy. But we he recorded at his studio for the pre-production, and he had a Fostex B-16 tape recorder, and... For I those mean, of you that don't you-
0: know, that's an actual
2: 16-track tape reel-to-reel machine. Right, <laughs> right. I don't want to say exactly how old I am, but <laughs> I, I am old enough <laughs> that, that, that you that worked I would on 16-track use, track tape. <laughs> that I've worked on 16-track tape. I mean, this was a half-inch format. It was basically a budget tape machine that you could get if you couldn't afford a reel-to-reel two-inch tape machine. Like so, I learned what he did, and I saw, you know. I could actually afford to make a small studio like this, so I did, my band was dropped, or the band I was playing in was dropped, it was a three-piece band, but we were dropped by MCA. I was already doing a lot of songwriting for R&B records and for rock stuff is really what I wanted to play, but I put an ad in Music Connection magazine in the back saying, you know, keyboard player available, come hire me. Did that exist
0: way back when? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, this was when it was written on stone tablets. Oh, okay. But yeah, it was there. So I would get um, people calling me up and what they really wanted to do was use my studio. And I kind of then started advertising. I can do your production start to finish. You're a singer, come on in here. I'll do everything for you. So I started doing a lot of demos, some of the demos we got lucky with. And then I wound up producing records, um, mostly hip hop. (laughs) Those are the ones that wound up being successful. So I was doing a lot of real music and then I got a couple of opportunities to do music for um, TV, starting with a Hot Wheels commercial. It was basically, I was in a poker game, a weekly poker game, just a bunch of friends. One of the other guys in the poker game was a director. He was doing a Hot Wheels commercial. He didn't like the guys who normally did the music for their Mattel commercials. (laughs) Nice. He said, hey, you you play rock music, right? Can you do some music for this commercial? And it's like, yeah, that sounds like fun. You didn't do this by winning a poker hand? <laughs> no, it wasn't a bet. It was, but that would have been cool. You know, it's like the the big showdown. He puts up three hundred bucks to the table. That's his stakes, and my stakes are: if you lose, you have to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how I did it. <laughs> that would have been the better way to do it. But no, I got lucky with no commitment, actually. So the commercial wound up doing really well. It won some awards. Sweet. So he, he became like the director you know, that they started wanting to go to from Mattel, you know, starting with Hot Wheels then, but he also got Barbie commercials. And then I got a lot of gigs from that as well. And then producers or other directors would be hiring me too. And then they would be working on some other project, a TV show or a pilot or promos or trailers or whatever. And I like to compare it to like a, an STD. I just basically <laughs> went from, <laughs> from one person to another. And, you know, I had a, a decent career doing TV then as well. In fact, in many ways, I mean, it was a modest career, but it was it was successful enough. It was more satisfying than in the record career. Most of the stuff I was doing in records was hip hop. So I kind of phased that out and focused just on TV. But then there's a forum, VI Control, where there were some people talking about, they were coding some instruments for contact. And the instrument, the language that they use for instruments in contact is called KSP. Context Scripting Protocol or something. I don't know what the P stands for. They were doing this stuff, and I'm looking at what they're doing, and I'm realizing I understand the logic of what this computer coding is. Because before I came to L.A., I was a, a math student. I, I've been playing in bands and stuff since I was a kid, but you know, I went to college for math in you know, a small town in Northern California in Eureka before I came to L.A., and I had a couple of computer classes back then, so I understood how this computer coding worked and stuff as I was looking at it. I so didn't know what all question. the commands were. Good uh-huh.
0: question. You mentioned you were in a three-piece band signed to a label. Yeah. Were you some sort of like Rush knockoff or something because of the math and the prog rock and all that, or is it something else? No. Uh, just no, straight this, up would have
2: been, this is in the 80s, and it was New Wave. This was oh, okay. the closest band I can think of to compare us to would have been Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Um, it was
0: okay. <laughs> not the vibe I would have got from you uh, at all. <laughs>
2: no, it was. Well, you know, I played in a lot of bands. Um, okay. I mean, you know, we were all unsigned. But I'm a keyboard player. I also play guitars, but keyboard's what everybody wants me for. When you're a keyboard player, everybody wants you. So yeah. you know, it's like I could get into bands. I was playing in a heavy metal band. I was playing in a, um in some rootsy bands. It was you know, it's just different stuff. I was here for a few years. I mean, I've been here consistently since then. Anyway, math.
0: Math, so, going back.
2: <laughs> God's subject, math. Mm. So I saw that I could do this, so I thought it would be kind of fun. In my TV scoring, most of the stuff that I get tends to be song-oriented, because ultimately, I'm a songwriter. I'm less of a you know quote-unquote composer as I am a songwriter. That's why I do so many commercials, or theme songs, or stuff like that. I never get hired to do like scoring a primetime drama or something like that. I've never had one of those. Okay. But since I do so many songs, literally hundreds of them that have been commercials or TV shows and stuff, a lot of times the singers come in and I'd like to work really fast where we get the song down while the energy's up, while the song is really in our heads rather than in tweak mode. Because in my opinion, tweak mode is where you're kind of lost the energy of the song. Yeah. So. When it comes to harmonies and backgrounds and stuff, the real harmonies, we sing those while they're here. But a lot of times a singer will say, oh, should we put down some oohs and ahs in the B section or in the chorus or something like that? And I'm a guy who doesn't do useless takes generally. If I don't think it's gonna work, I don't even record it. I make the decisions as we're going. So you hit the delete
0: key right after a take is done if it's there or not, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, not necessarily the delete key. I just don't hit the record key if I don't think an idea is gonna make it to the final song. you're talking about
0: the idea as a 10. Because for me, I actually will hit the delete key if a take is
2: useless. I won't even keep it. Well, you know what? I will do that, yes. Because, I mean, it's probably the same for you, but in the mix phase of this, I don't wanna look at 30 lead vocal tracks. Exactly. Yeah, I want to kind of know what's going on. Because the truth is, for me at least, when I'm listening to these tracks, there's not a whole lot of difference. And if I didn't take notes, which means always, because I never take (laughs) notes. (laughs) If I didn't take notes, I don't really even know why is this second track here? What was the reason for redoing that line? Because sometimes you can hear they were out of tune on a word or something. Those are obvious. But sometimes... You know, I'll be listening, and I might tell the singer, oh, can you growl a little bit at the word see or something? Can you see me? And then instead of, can you see me? You know, Mm -hmm. something like that I might ask for, but I don't necessarily know that when I'm listening. And then who knows which I think is better when we're all done. So (laughs) I try and make the decisions as we're going, and I'll even try and make the comp lead vocal track as we're going, just so that it's gonna be easier in the mix.
0: But you're talking about deadline recording too, right?
2: Yes, yes, yes.
0: That's a little bit, that's like kind of how you have to work when you're really on deadlines.
2: Yeah, it's it's. I'm not saying anybody else should work the way that I do. I think everybody has their own style. Sure. If I were writing songs just for the sake of writing songs right now, honestly, I would still work this same way, but I think it's only because it works for me. It's only the way that I prefer to work, which is really fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, my philosophy is I would rather write 10 songs in a week than one song in a week. Because if I write one song, that song fundamentally is either good or it isn't. And I may spend a whole week or two weeks or whatever polishing that turd or whatever you want to say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> not realizing that, you know, I really should have moved on to another song. So my feeling is I'd rather write a whole bunch of songs. I, I want to write quality songs, but I would rather spend the time in the writing than in the production because I've done enough songs over the years that I'm sure you guys can identify. I can mix a song really fast. I can put the instrumental parts on a song really fast. I may not have something that Bob Clearmount would be proud of, but I have something that's good enough that here's what this song sounds like. So in fact, I have an audio demo that was the, Number one rap song on the West Coast for a few weeks. Sweet, that was the cassette demo. Oh
0: Jesus! <laughs> wow. Was it on a Task Cam 688? It, it was,
2: oh no, it, this was recorded on 24 track. This is when oh, I okay. had my 24 track machines. But it was just the board mix. I mean, it was a good board mix. It wasn't, you know, a rough mix. But it was, I, well, essentially, was a rough mix. But you know, it, it wasn't what I was considering a mix. It's just we made the mix, and the guys are walking out with a cassette so that they can. Oh, and for some of the listeners, cassettes are these little things. They have (laughs) tape that goes around in a circle. Small tape that went (laughs) in
0: a small tape deck.
2: Yes. And then it would eventually turn into a big wad of tape inside that tape deck that you'd (laughs) then pull out and use a pencil to turn around and try and make it straight again. If you
1: were lucky. (laughs) lucky. But you're describing a couple of things there, Mike, that I think are important to keep in mind. It's something that both Jody and I sort of – preach as well is certainly during the writing stage is to keep moving and not get so bogged down with the little details. You know, so when you're writing, keep moving really, really quickly, because even if, let's say somebody doesn't go to perhaps the speed of of that you're used to working to now, getting those ideas out and keep writing is sort of filling it up as opposed to developing, Okay, we're starting, I got a great line for a verse here let's keep developing that okay now you develop that for like two hours right okay now we need a chorus it doesn't work that way so trying to get everything out quickly and just move on and trust that well i I can write another song later as well instead of i think that breeds better quality in the end as well because you're just getting everything out and it seems to for me at least that that's the way it kind of works, and then you can get to a point where you got the structure of a song and then you go, "Ah, oh, that was garbage. Let's do something else, right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I think that that's an important one to do. But it's uh, also kind of a testament, I think, to you finding your workflow there when you can lean on your experience where you say that, well, this, is, this isn't this is going to go work. We're going down the wrong path here, so let's scrap this and keep moving on or, no, keep moving another take and all this kind of stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I heard, I don't want to mention the name because it's another podcast here, but I heard something when you were talking about multiple vocal takes and stuff. And somebody brought up, and I thought it was actually a very interesting point, when in those cases where, you know, you get sent a mix and they haven't comped the vocal, or even we can do this for ourselves anyway. Let's say that we have 10 vocal takes, right? This person's way of thinking was that, well, I'm always going to do the second to last one, even if I don't remember, the second to last take. The thinking was that, well, the first one wasn't good, so they have tried to do take after take after take, right? And then usually what happens when, we can, oh, I think we got it there, but let's just try one more just to be safe. So that would be take number 10. So just always go for the, the second to last take. That's probably the best one to go for. So It's kind of like if you tighten
2: a bolt and you keep tightening and tightening until it breaks.
1: Okay, yeah. we want it tightened to right
2: before it broke. Exactly, yeah. Now do it again, right? Yeah. Right, right.
1: So I, I want to ask you a question here because you started going into how you presumably started making your own libraries, like yeah. sample libraries and things. Was that, because Because this is something I wondered myself and not just for the show, but was that to sort of satisfy a need in your own arsenal? Or was it that you just saw, hey, I'm going to be good at this, so I can offer something that's going to be a cool product? Or was it something that you initially did just for your own use type of thing? It was,
2: really, it was just for fun. Oh. Um, I'll often say that Realitone is more of a hobby than a business, and that's probably less true today than it was a few years ago. I mean, I still treat it as a hobby. Originally, it was, I saw that these guys were coding this thing, and I thought to myself, I'll bet you I could make a legato vocal instrument. You know, legato meaning that you have connected notes. So instead of, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, it'll go, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, like that. Ooh, right. So, you know, it's just kind of a challenge, and. I don't wanna overstate that I understood when I saw the code that these guys were writing. When I tried to make my thing do that legato thing, it took me a couple months um, sure. to, well, maybe a couple of weeks. I don't remember, but it, it wasn't, oh, now I know how to do that, clickety-clickety-click, and now I've got my instrument. Yeah. <laughs> it was like- it was this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was me reading the manual for how to code and learning the commands and all this kind of stuff, and then experimenting. One of the singers that's actually in our first instrument, which was Real Vox Ladies, is Julie. And Julie's done a ton of singing for me over the years. Tons of Barbie commercials, tons of Nye commercials, or Nye shows and, you know, different stuff. She was the guinea pig. I'd have her sing various things because from a practical standpoint, what I really wanted to do was create something to do the oohs and the ahs. Because mm. when I talked about wanting to work quickly with singers, I would often make mistakes. And I would say, no, we don't need oohs and ahs in the chorus. And then they leave, oops, I wish we had some oohs and ahs <laughs> in the backgrounds in the chorus. Yeah. But what if, what if I made a contact instrument that was one guy, one or two separate contact instruments, one's a guy, one's a girl, one's a woman, whatever you want, the political, politically correct <laughs> thing to say these, say, but what if I had one instrument And all it was was ooze and ahs. And then that way, all I'd have to do is they'd leave and it's like, oh, okay, I already got the ooze and ahs. I'd probably still want to record them if I knew I need them because real is going to be better than samples. Sure. But if I forget, then I'd have this and I could always layer that in there ready to go and it will just cover me. And plus, it'll help me just in my own stuff because even in TV stuff, you know, a lot of times you're doing stuff that's not budgeted for singers or. I mean, right. a lot of stuff I get is so low budget. It's not budgeted for anything. It's not even budgeted <laughs> for me. <laughs> Ooh, so,
0: don't we all know that feeling?
2: <laughs> we all know that all too well, mm-hmm. but that was how it started. And odds it may sound, I kind of started thinking I could make a business out of it as well. And one of the main motivations for making a business was so that I could have a booth at Nam. <laughs> <laughs> life goals <Right. laughs> life goals and I have to say that was a life goal for me and we'd been thinking as a friend of mine we'd been thinking of things we could do little businesses that we could make that we could have the booth at Nam. Like, we had this little start-stop transport thing for sequencers that, that we came up with. We didn't make a prototype or anything. This is just a couple of guys sitting around <laughs> being stupid. Talking shit. Talking <laughs> shit. <laughs> but we thought, you know, we could make these things, sell them for like 50 bucks or 100 bucks, have a booth at NAM, which is like, five, you know, five grand for the smallest 10 by 10 booth. So we only have to sell like 50 of them, and then, then we spend the rest of the weekend walking around the show. This is, sounds like the
0: hardest way to get into NAM that I've ever heard of.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I got to go to NAM this year, and it only cost me $5,500. <laughs> yeah.
2: I didn't say it was a good idea. Uh, it was an idea. It was an idea. Was an idea right. but. You know, I love NAM. Even before I had Realitone, I would get it. I live in L.A., but let's you know, let,
0: yeah. let's cut in for a real quick second for a word from our sponsors, and then we'll continue with the NAM story right after this. And we're back, and we're going to cut right back into Mike's story about getting into NAM by creating a booth at NAM, which we, Chris <laughs> and I both think is maybe the most expensive way to try.
2: <laughs> it, it, it it is, but. You know, like I say, it was kind of it, it, a lot of it was just for fun. And my first Nam booth was in two thousand eight. By the time I actually got the booth, I was at that point taking it kind of seriously. <laughs> well, yeah, which have is what you want to do, isn't with it? It's like very expensive to get a booth, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, even well, in two thousand eight, it was probably kind of pricey for a booth. I think I might have been like thirty-five hundred or four grand or something, and then I Oof. rented the tables and stuff from a party rentals place here. And I have a pickup, so I brought the stuff down there. And it was just, it, it, it was fun. But yes, by the time I was doing that, I was, I was starting to take it a little bit more seriously as opposed to plan A, which is make this for me, have a fun booth, give away copies to all my friends and, and all that stuff. So I'll never forget there was, I'm doing these demonstrations at Nam in hall E, which is downstairs, that's where the new companies yeah, all have All the new go. stuff,
0: yes. <laughs> yeah,
2: all the new stuff. And I'm doing these demonstrations and there's this guy with a cell phone, this is 2008, before everybody was using cell phone to take videos, but he was. And he's he's like, I'm showing the product to some, or showing Realivox, which is our main product, the first one that we released. And this is still in the pre-stage, I wasn't even close to finishing it. But I'm showing it to a few people that are standing around the booth, and there's this guy, you know, with his cell phone out. And then, you know, the people leave, and then he comes up and introduces himself as Kevin Fortner, who's the editor of Keyboard Magazine, which was mm-hmm. the yeah. magazine back yeah, then. That's a pretty big deal but, right there. Yeah. He yeah. said, so, Wow, this is really great stuff. You know, you should be pleased with yourself. Please let me know when you're close <laughs> to release, because we want to have a feature on this. And woof. Yeah, I literally, you know, he walked away and I left the booth just to go outside to call my wife, um, you <laughs> nice. know, shaking with how exciting that was to hear. I mean, it was really an emotional kind of thing. And then sure. Nick Bat from Sonic State comes by and does a video of us and it was just a rush. Um, Instant validation
0: is what that is.
2: It was, yeah. It was really exciting. and. So consequently, you know, once Nam got over, then I said, you know, I need to finish this product, and I got it finished within a few months. Ha! No. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't finally release RehaliVox until about five years later, because. <laughs> well, so how
0: many months is that? I, I, what's the math? <laughs> I don't remember whether 60. it was
2: 2012 or 2013 when we finally released. But the thing about it is, is that. This really was and still is largely a hobby because I was doing composing at the time and that's where my money was being made. And the truth is, sample libraries, unless you get to a status of Spitfire or some of these larger companies, it's not a high profit business. And in fact, when we first released Realvox, I think we sold, and I think this was either 2012 or maybe early 2013. Mind you, I'd been at, five Nam shows, this had been discussed on forums. I had a mailing list. I sent out an email list when it was finally released. And the first week, I think we sold around five copies and oh, maybe, oh, ouch. <laughs> maybe 20 or so in the first month. So it's not, and this isn't, like I said, there was marketing, you know, sure. guerrilla marketing, just me, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd worked hard on this. And that was a little disappointing for what I expected. But even then, I knew that it wasn't going to be 100 copies in the first week. Maybe I hoped for 100 in the first month. I don't know. But I know now that's not realistic for a new company. Not to get too far ahead of myself. Now that I'm a more established company, I have a much larger mailing list. You know, I have access to more things than I used to. So 100 would be a disaster now, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, but I knew that this, I'm not going to get rich on this. So I need to still focus on doing bad TV, you know, over <laughs> and all that junk that I was doing because that's what was paying the mortgage. That's what paid off this studio. Are you still all in these, the same spot? I'm still in the same spot.
0: Okay, yep. just I don't. Chris has never been there, and obviously, a, probably a vast majority of our listeners have never been there. But I obviously <laughs> have because I did some work for you. And let's just and say, fine that, work you did. It, thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> this space is in like a nondescript looking. I, 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 what kind of building is it? Because it was kind of hard for me to find. But once I got there and I walked inside, it's ginormous. <laughs> by
2: Hollywood standards, in my mind. It's huge. It's, it's a legit recording studio, even though it's a private recording studio. Right, right. I built it mostly, I mean, this, the building itself is 3000 square feet and then I have a thousand Ooh. square foot garage in the back that we built, but that's mostly just for my cars. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But it's a two room studio. You were in Studio B, I'm here in Studio A. Right. And I built it mostly because I was producing records and doing commercials, but when I was producing records, you know, you get a producer's fee, which is usually like three grand or something like that, but the studio also gets paid. So if I own the studio, and I'm producing a song, (laughs) I get paid twice, so that's why we built it. And little side Hmm. fact, well, it's gonna sound like I'm name dropping, but I did um, a bunch of work for David Bowie, and that's around the time before I built this place here, and he asked if, if I'd want, to have him as a partner on this place. and Yes, please. To to this day, I told him no, and my wife is still kind of pissed at me. Oh, that's (laughs) unfortunate.
0: But, I mean, look at this space. I've been there, and it's really, it's nondescript from the outside. You wouldn't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. And when when you walk inside, it's
0: like, holy cow, this place is huge. And... (laughs) Most people that have big, big places like that don't tend to hold on to them for extremely long periods of time because they get expensive. So it's kudos it's to of, you for keeping
2: that. Th- thank you. It's a little crazy that I do keep it because with COVID for the last two years, mm-hmm. I'm the only guy that's been here. And it's a total waste of space or a total waste of a legit place that somebody else would Probably like to have and be willing to pay me money for.
0: Well, at this but, point now, it's probably worth a fortune, I would think. <laughs>
2: it's yeah, it's kind of insane. I, I I don't know if it'd be tacky to talk numbers. No, but, it doesn't matter. I, I'm just
0: I'm I'm just I'm I'm a flabbergasted because, like I said, the size of that space is yeah. big, and most people wouldn't have enough workflows, so to speak, to hold on to something that large.
2: Yeah, well, TV was, I mean, low-budget TV, that's what I was doing, but it was very lucrative. And records, I still collect record royalties, but if you get a bad TV, I shouldn't say bad TV, nobody's trying to get a bad TV show. But like right now, I have a show that started airing last year. It's called um, Relative Justice. And it's one of those court shows. Nice. I don't know who's watching this, so I won't say. uh, No, it's okay. (laughs) I won't say (laughs) what I would usually say if we were sitting around about the quality of this show. Right, right. You know, it airs, and it airs twice a day, five days a week. Wow, so you that's, do the a, lot math. that's yeah. a lot of airing. That's a lot of airing. So, you know, you do the math on that. Well, that's pretty good money. Yeah. So, for the ASCAP royalties, because for people who don't know how ASCAP or BMI royalties work, you get paid the same for the one millionth airing as you do for the first one. It's really yes. all just based on which markets, what network, or what TV stations, if and it's syndicated in this case, and how often. Right, and what time of day. Sure. But- But, you know, it's like if it's airing 10 times a week and a number of my shows did that, especially when I was doing Oprah and when I was doing, you know, um, Nate Berkus or Dr. Oz or, you know, those kinds of shows. And I did other stuff, Unexplained Mysteries or Maximum Exposure. Sleeper Cell. (laughs) Well, Sleeper Cell was – all I had was the theme and it only airs on Showtime. So, I made made decent money on that. But it it wasn't like these – Network type of – Right, When you get
0: a theme – that's where the big money is because that's every time, every time it airs every week. I know it's just because I have a theme, but um, yeah.
2: <laughs> they, they are they are nice. And that's why I like doing themes because yeah, I
0: love doing themes too. It's great.
2: Yeah. You do it once and then you just and keep collecting. <laughs> <laughs> Slave or Cell was one of my favorite themes, but you know, they only air the show, only went two seasons and it was showtime. So the royalties. I mean, that's the sad thing about this business, like the Bill Nye theme. That hmm. one paid not much in royalties at all because it's PBS. Sure. There were a lot of episodes, but the money is in maximum exposure, which you've probably never heard of. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it ran for years and years, and it's wall to wall music, the theme, plus literally in an hour long show, 43 minutes of content. Holy it's cow, that's 43 a lot of music. minutes of music Oof. under it. Yeah. So, because generally the worse the show, the more the music. Consequently, Mike Green makes more money than other people for the same shows because Mike works on bad shows. So they have to <laughs> fill those shows with music. So, so, while Mike Post is a great composer and does Law & Order, there's only two or three minutes of music in that show. Mike's show, there's 43 minutes of music.
1: <laughs> wow. so, it's,
2: so, it's, so it's really unfair, but you know, I'll take it. So. Yeah. Um,
1: I want to ask a question. This is purely selfish because whenever I've listened to or heard one of these Q&As about composers, whether that's for jingles or or scoring movies or whatever, people like us generally ask the question about gear. To me, that's, okay, boring. I, I don't care what kind of orchestral library you did when you wrote this. But one thing that I've never heard anybody ask And I've always wanted to the answer to, so now I'm going to ask you, when (laughs) you get approached to do something like this, first, what goes through, how much do you generally get in a brief, like we want something kind of like this, or if it's left up to you, what's your sort of mentality that you go into that? What's the sort of psychology how you approach a project like that? So let's say that somebody's pitching you a TV show, and we want you to compose for this, how much guidelines do you usually get or what is your mindset going into it? I
2: usually get a pretty minimal amount of request at the beginning of it because most of the people that I've worked for, and I don't get a lot of gigs right now. I don't want to make it sound like you know my phone's ringing. It's not. Most of the time I'm working for people that know me pretty well. And mm-hmm. we're also well, you doing play sh- poker
0: with him. <laughs> I
2: play po- well, you know, he's still a really good friend today. Fantastic. Um, we we <laughs> don't work thing. together anymore, but but yeah. Most of the time, I'm working for people that I've worked with a lot on low budget shows. So they know, and one of the reasons they hire me is I know the drill. I know. So
1: they know what they're going to get out of my Green when he's going to do that. Yes. And he can, okay.
2: And a lot of shows are obvious. There was a show called um, Unexplained Mysteries that I did, different from Unsolved Mysteries, you know, just so we're clear on that sure, yeah. This was like a, a lower budget version of that show, as low budget as that show was. Right. So, so I did this show. I got no instructions ahead of time. I probably shouldn't even named what the show was, but you know what? It doesn't matter if I lose clients at this point. Um, <laughs> so I get this show. <laughs> They hire me to do it. And the client is great, by the way. I love these guys. But Mm -hmm. one of the things I love about them is they trust me to do basically a number of clients. With the Bill Nye Show, which I think one of the reasons why it was so successful is because they hired people and they did not give a lot of instructions. They just hire people that we like what you do. So do what you do. And we'll see if it works. If something's wrong, we'll fix it. We'll tell you, you know, oh, you know, it needs to be not so this or that. But sure. it's sort of, you kind of want to hire the guy who already is what you want to have. That's what happened with this show. I had done maximum exposure for him before. They had this next show called Unexplained Mysteries. They told me what the show was. They sent me the pilot. And that's the end of the instructions I got. I got the pilot. Wow. I showed up to the post session with the music. The audio engineer is there. I'm there. There is no client there it's him Uh and me. Nobody has listened to a thing I've done so far. So that's the mix for the pilot. Show gets picked up, which was another good show, 43 minutes per hour of music, (laughs) 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 which tells you what level of show it is. But (laughs) the show gets picked up and then they call me and they want to talk about music. We're going to need this is a, a needle drop show. The pilot was post-scored, but then for the real show, it's I supply them with a library of cues and then the editors drop in the music. You know, They decide what they want to use in each section. Sure, okay. So they're giving me some guidelines. They're going to want this many cues that are going to have some rhythmic elements. There's probably going to be some times when they go to Asia or something. So I write a bunch of Asian cues, which are undoubtedly offensive because I probably did some <laughs> things that I shouldn't have done. And, and I actually, you know what? I, I, I'm not just trying to make a politically correctness joke. Some of the stuff I probably did, you know, I should have spent a little bit more time finding out what the music really is. I mean, I just did a lot of very generic stereotypical sure. things, but well, I'm going like off the on the a Tommy, tangent. Tommy,
0: uh, Tommy, Tommy. Who's the, the guitar player, Tommy, um, Ah, he did like tons of stuff with the TV show, Tommy shows. Tedesco. Tommy Tedesco, sorry. I was, was the last oh, name was yes. escaping me. He, yeah. he was notorious for just, like they'd ask for something, and if they said something Spanish, he would go from an E major chord and run the three fingers to the F major position <laughs> and not actually change the root notes, and it would give him that mysterious, and, he, and then they'd say, oh, we want it to be this, and he would do the exact same thing with a different chord, and they would love it. So is it... Like politically correct, no, but whatever. Well,
2: I do the same thing, that same E to F trick. It's, you know, keeping the E root. It's just yep. it's right. you know there you go okay.
0: <laughs> nice <laughs> so and dark, dark. Phrygian. That's right, right? <laughs> yeah, we we just went south at the border. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. Here we are. <laughs> so you mentioned something else interesting about not being given a lot of direction, and then they come back to you and they're asking for something. And I know from talking to a lot of artists that many will get actually offended if what they turned in isn't considered right. You're yeah. kind of like, it sounds like under the mindset of like, well, I'll just go back to the drawing board and do it again and that kind of thing. So when you're told something like this, do you get offended? I'm going to postulate that you're going to say no. Is that correct?
2: Usually not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I've done a number of things where there are some exceptions. But for the most part, if the client thinks that it's not right, it probably isn't right? Um, right. because they know their show better than I do and i may think that something is the most brilliant piece of music ever a few years ago i did an update for a court show i did an update for their theme song and in this update the existing music they had was terrible they thought it was terrible because it's very cheesy sounding you know it sounds like little tv <laughs> I can music i
0: think which show this is
2: <laughs> well it actually describes a bunch of them but right it but does. i do this thing and it's this big epic orchestral thing that i did cuz They wanted this show to be important. They want, you know, it's court, they're making tough decisions here. It's, you know, it's a daytime TV court show, but they wanted to make it an important kind of thing. They hired a graphics guy to do this graphics package. He did an amazing job. It just really looked great. All these, you know, graphics flying in, big important stuff. I'm trying to actually remember what the name of the show was now, but, so I do this thing and I'm really happy with it. And I turn it in, or actually I don't turn it in. The graphics guy does because the graphics are married to the music. They put it in there. They splice it onto the beginning of the show. Totally wrong. Because oh, no. this is daytime TV. And this is a lesson that I learned. Sure. We've got this big dun da dun da-da-dun, dun you know, that kind yeah. of thing happening. And then coming right out of that, you cut to this set, brightly lit, in these dopey colors, some <laughs> bailiff in his polyester outfit. Well, in today's case, we've got this guy or neighbor, bitter dog, you know. <laughs> the, <laughs> the people's court. It, I there, it's, I went and said it. <laughs> it just makes no connection. The music by itself was good, right? But it doesn't, it is wrong for the show. And the client didn't even have to tell me. It's like they didn't want to hurt my feelings. And they sent me, you know, well, here's what it looks like. We're not sure. And I'm looking and it's like, oh, yeah, wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't get the gig. <laughs>
0: Follow-up question on that is, is what is the quickest turnaround of approval from something you've written as a theme to it being approved?
2: Well, I'll go back to that Unexplained Mysteries show. Okay. I do the pilot. And they're on the phone with me talking about what kind of cues they're going to need. And then I said, oh, okay. So what about the theme? You know, what kind of changes? I did a temporary theme for the pilot. You know, you got any ideas on that? Oh, that sounded fine. <laughs> oh, well, that's pretty quick. There you go. <laughs> that would be the quickest. <laughs> All right. Well, I, the only reason why I bring it up is
0: I once did a theme for a TV show. And when... Other people found out how quickly it was actually approved. They kind of freaked out because I guess the average is around two to three months. Does that sound about right? Oh wow!
2: Well, mind I guess you, it's I'm not for major high end kind of shows. Thing. Okay. Yeah, I'm not doing major network shows. So, I mean, even like the sleeper cell theme, I've done some shows that did take a little time. Sleeper sh- cell was a week or so. I guess it kind of depends on you know where you say it started the approval process, but. It's not like all my shows are are the same in terms of how the process works. Sure. A lot of times it's, you know, they don't like something that they have. Oh, let's let Mike take a shot and then I do it. And they either like it or they don't. I just hear what the final result is. I don't know what the backroom conversations were. Other times I'll be hired for something. And most of the time, since my shows tend to be on the lower end of the budget spectrum, you know, as I'm turning in theme ideas, I'm also giving them other stuff. I remember a show once where, What I've found is you can get sign-off easier if you give people alternate versions. Sure. Not alternate versions meaning different mixes, but actually different songs. Right. Mm. It's like, you know, you want to do a theme song. Here's this theme song here. It's kind of rocky this way. Here's another one with a totally different melody. Here's one that's EDM. Might do that. Mm. (laughs) So I give them those three things and like one example, when I did maximum exposure, I walked in with four. And they were totally different from each other. One of them was two of them were rock. One was this kind of techno-y kind of thing. And another one was, this isn't ma- Maximum Exposure, this is Model Citizens. Um. <laughs> <laughs> totally different so, concept. So, right, right. So, so it was like, I, I walked in there with three or four things and one of them was a completely Hollywood musical. There, dun, 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 So I did that because I thought it'd be kind of cool in a comical way as a theme song. It was just an idea that I had. And then there was another one that was like this R&B kind of song. And then another one was kind of this quirky kind of thing. And I think that there was also, and then there was a a rock song, kind of like a Blink 182 kind of a thing. There are four completely different things. I walk into this meeting with this on CD, which is what we're up to by then, um, (laughs) with these four ideas. And we're in the meeting, it's just one guy is there, one of the producers, there's two brothers who are producers. So the producer's there, and, you know, he pops it in his thing. He listens to him and says, oh, you sound pretty good. So then he calls in on the intercom. He calls his brother in. And when his brother gets there, it says, oh, Mike just came in here with these themes. We need to pick which one we want to use. <laughs> and nice. that, was his <laughs> ment- that was his mentality is, you know, my role is to supply them with these versions and they need to pick one. I don't know that it even occurred to them that they could say... We don't really like any of those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, but
2: that's the best, best because, kind of meeting to walk into. That's, it's, right. it's, 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 I love those guys.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't tell them they have an option, right? No, yeah. no. no.
2: Well, you know, th- these are low budget shows. They're in a situation also where they're not making money by spending two weeks on every aspect of the show. They need right. to crank this thing out because they're not getting paid a lot of money either. This is yeah. a bulk process where they need to crank out a lot of shows. They had, in this particular case, they had to start shooting the next week. They don't wanna really be mired down in in music. If the music's good enough, and on that show, I'm really proud of it actually, but if it's good enough, and again, in this case, I think the theme on that one is great, then they're done. They just wanna sign this off. They don't wanna you know, sure. be beating me up over everything. Um, And I think that that's where sometimes if you do have challenges, it's not so much whether or not the music that you write is correct or not, it's that there's some ego involved and whoever's making the decision has a lot of time. They're not in a position where they've gotta get moving on this show. So consequently, they wanna, I mean, there's been some times with Barbie commercials where I have gotten some crazy ideas. More than once I've had producers of these commercials Commercials are producer-driven, not director-driven. But I've had producers tell me that they wanna try like a male voice singing the, the jingle, which in the abstract, I can think of ways how that might work depending on the song. The Maybe you want a Justin Bieber <laughs> kind of a song. I'm sorry. The Bee Gees <laughs> falsetto. <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting. You know, I could I could think of ways to really force that to work, but ultimately, the Barbie commercial, you want that same voice, which is why I hired you know a singer like Julie Griffin or Terry Wood to sing these commercials because their voice is just instant Barbie. Um, right. you get these people, they want to have an idea, they want kind of their stamp to be on it's like, hey, that was my idea for him to do a right. male vocal yeah. on this or yeah, something. Yeah, hear that? <laughs> that? That was me,
1: I came up with that, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it depends on who you're dealing with
1: yeah but i think ultimately what were you kind of describing there is that they again they know what you're going to deliver and there's no point in sort of like breathing down your neck because first off like you said they don't have the budget or the time to allocate to that so let's get a guy in that can deliver what we want and as long as you do what you think is best, chances are it's going to be fine, right? So there's a trust thing there as opposed to how you describe with with the ego thing when everybody wants to put their two cents in
0: because that's what happened to me on my second theme. It's like they kept asking and asking for change after change after change. And I finally said, you need to give me better direction. I can't give you what you're asking for if you keep telling me to go down the wrong road. And at that point, what the, ended up happening, and this really irks me, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. They went with something one of their editors put together that almost sounds like it was from my stems, but I can't prove Uh, it, and that really pisses me off. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yes, yes, I could see that. I've been lucky that, well, I did have one show where I actually wasn't asked to write the theme, but... I basically was trying to get a theme for this network show, which I've never had a legit network show other than like Oprah specials and stuff like that. I tried to get this thing and I did some spec themes for them, um, You know, basically just trying to get my foot in the door. And the theme they wound up hiring, they hired the same guy that they always hire. And I knew that it was gonna be an uphill battle replacing him because they had a relationship with sure. him. And it's the same thing with my clients. They're loyal to me. It's it's. You know, I feel a little weird trying to steal somebody else's gig, but you know, if I could steal their gig, I'm gonna steal it. The theme that he did was a knockoff of my song. Oh, it, it's, wow. it's, it's not actionable in that he didn't actually steal the melody, but it was my idea to right. do, you know, this bluesy kind of thing that had a, I mean, a lot of blues has rock tinges to it anyway, but it was an idea that I had of, you know what worked great for your show? This. And then they, you know, said, oh, yeah, sounds really great, Mike. But, you yeah, know, we're going to go with our regular guy. And then here's the theme. I mean, I saw this on TV when it finally aired, and I just, I had to leave. I went, had to take a long walk You hey, got to take cool a deep down. breath
0: and calm down because that kind of shit pisses yeah. you off. I get it.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, because it gets to the whole thing of I cannot complain about the career and the breaks that I've had in this business. I'm really lucky. I I don't deny that for a second. Especially Um, for
0: somebody who turned down David Bowie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that does bug me at times because, well, you know, that goes back to the same thing. I was doing my own thing, and the studio by then was a private studio. It's not open to the public. We're talking 25 years ago. It's like, had he been an investor in it then... Who knows? I don't know that Mick Jagger and the boys were gonna, you know, be spending, you know, all sure. their time here. Sure. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Who knows what might have happened. And I do regret that because ultimately after that, I became, you know, a rap producer, which I love rap, you know, I, I love hip hop, but there's only so long that you can listen to You know, I wished that I could have been a rock producer. You know, I produced a number of rock songs and stuff for bands, but zero success. And who knows what might've happened. It's, I'm happy with how things did happen. Sure. Who knows, you know, I might've been the producer for, you know, whatever band it is that he brought in and, you know, said, hey, Mike, why don't you help these guys out? And I do have that regret.
1: It's a a little band from England called the Rolling Somethings. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Although,
2: Although I'm not old enough that, I would have been the first producer of Rolling, no, 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 so not sure. the first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of hinting to that story,
1: right? Yeah, but, but, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
2: Here's a question
0: for you, though, in regards to all the TV stuff that you may or may not still be doing, and you have this fairly in-depth set of products now from Realitone. How often do you use your own products for your stuff?
2: Mostly. Okay, I made a product called Reala Drums, which that's. The only drum thing that I use, and I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be a salesman here. <gasps> a superior drummer, which is what most people use, is great. I have zero it. criticisms of it, except for my, you know, and, and it's not a criticism, it's just here's how I work. I come from the days where we had like the Elisis DM Pro, and the way that that worked is it had a bank of kick drums, it had a bank of snare drums, no round robins, no dynamics, nothing like that. You just went through the thing, turn the knob, this kick drum, that kick drum, that kick drum, that kick drum, oh, I like that one. Okay, now I'm gonna choose the snare drum. Oh, I like that one. So there's my kick and snare, I'm ready to go, I'm done. And that's what I tried to make reala drums. It's not deep, I mean, there's round robins, there's dynamics, but it's not, 50 round robins with 30 dynamics. It's a much more limited set. You don't have the full mic mixes. I've done the mixing for you. I give you four mix options. And again, I'm not trying to sell this to anybody, but for certain people that like to work the way that I do, which is where we don't wanna spend more than a few minutes picking drum sounds, we wanna get on to just make the beat and let's go, let's write this song, let's put together an arrangement of it. It's how I work. So probably more than anything, I use that particular instrument. It
0: seems like if I was going to put that much effort into creating an instrument, not only for other people, that I would want to build something that I would tend to use. And you mentioned something about doing Asian music, and I'm assuming that you may have done an Asian module. I, I, I don't no, know the catalog no. perfectly to know that, but do you not use anything other than Reala drums, or is that pretty much it? Why would you go through for, all for, that effort to create all that stuff and then not use it?
2: For drums, that's the only one that I use. Right. And... And again, I'm not trying to sound like a salesman, mm-hmm. but one of the reasons is, is when you make these instruments, you know these instruments. Right. Like drums, I don't have to read the manual. I don't have to poke around to figure out, oh, how would I make this sound more rock? How would I make it do this or that? I already know it. So. Can you just One give us reasons. that, like
0: the matrix where you can just plug it into our brains and then we don't have to know <laughs> the manual too?
2: <laughs> well, well, the reason is because you make the instrument. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And when you make the instrument, then you know everything that you put into it. And you also know where the, the weaknesses are. So I know what Riala drums can't do. Mm-hmm. And I know, like there's another instrument that we did called Riala banjo. That was the second instrument I ever made. And it was... That one was supposed to just be a freebie and it really was just for fun. Because I I tried to learn to play banjo and banjo is harder to learn than I thought. I mean, especially a with player. the I'm finger the mo-
0: pick, uh, finger picking yeah.
2: patterns are just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to go ding 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 ding. You know, that's not hard, but you know, it's like that was just beyond me. And with my guitar playing, I'm not a finger picker anyway. I'm a flat pick player. Okay. And Keyboards is my main instrument, not guitar. So I thought, you know, I'll just sample this banjo that I had bought at (laughs) NAMM. Did you get it from Daring? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I did. Nice. So I'll sample this banjo that I had, and then I can just make the patterns myself. And I'll give away the copies to my friends because it takes no time to record a banjo and sample it because the notes don't ring out very long. Like if you wanted to record a bass library, that's harder than you may think, because a note on a bass goes and keeps going for 30, 50, however many seconds before it finally shuts off. You have to decide, well, when do I wanna shut it off? Do I really wanna sample the whole thing? Whereas banjo goes ding, (laughs) doing, ding. And it's done, so you can sample the whole banjo in a couple of hours, which is what I did. I did the whole thing in an afternoon. I get this thing sampled, mapped out to the keyboard, and I say, okay, now I'm gonna play Beverly Hillbillies. So (laughs) I start putting my hand on the keyboard, and I realize I don't know what a banjo plays. I know what they sound like, I know what I wanna hear, but I don't know where my fingers should go. So I thought what I need to do is look up how do you play the banjo? And since I was already learning scripting and I'm doing this again as a hobby, just to see, I wonder if I can do this. That's the start of most of my instruments. I wonder if I could do this. Uh I built in a pattern player so that it actually automatically plays the parts for you. So all you Mm -hmm. have to do, you can play the notes manually or in the upper section, there's this green key section, and you just play a chord. If you hold down a G major, it will play a G major role. And then you move to a C, and it will play it in C, or E minor, or you know whatever. It will do suspended, major, minor, and then dominant seven and minor sevens.
0: And then you so, probably have, what, a key switcher for the different finger-picking patterns?
2: Yes. Yeah. Right now, there's 12 different patterns. And then now I'm not so sure I want to release this for free but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but now it's useful at least right but then since it's banjo wouldn't it be kind of fun if while he's playing these patterns I have a little graphic on the screen of a cartoon hillbilly <laughs> stomping his foot and moving his fingers on a banjo <laughs> <laughs> as he's playing so I you well, so definitely
0: can't give it away for free
2: because no, can't a lot give it of money. away <laughs> Well, it's I just found a stock picture, and I did the, oh. anima- or the animation myself. Gotcha. I mean, I spent way too much time on this, <laughs> but I did it. And then I decided he needed to have a dog, Buford the dog. <laughs> so Buford comes walking out, and then he sits down and starts wagging his tail and nodding his head as our hillbilly is, is playing these parts. And that's actually that's our bestseller. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Nicely done. Good for that's you. That's because so
0: many people don't want to learn to play
2: banjo. They just say, oh, I'll just... Buy that thing. It'll do it for that's me. That's true. That's true. Plus, it's cheap. <laughs> oh, so, there you go. <laughs> there's, that's the other factor. Is Like, you know, you release Box Ladies, you know, it's 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. So that's a harder sell than Realabancho for 59 bucks on sale right now for 39 bucks. But, you know, As it's like- As in the time
1: of recording this podcast, yes. people. Yes.
2: <laughs> As of the time of recording this podcast. Right. Yeah. Send me an email. I'll give you a coupon for the $20 off. <laughs> so- <laughs> We're real flexible, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like a salesman again. Sure, It's really, it's people send me emails for all sorts of things and we just say, sure, whatever you want, you know, it's like, this all you can afford or whatever. But that product was just a product that I did for fun, but I wind up using banjo on more songs than I normally would, not because they need banjo, but because if you need like some song where you need a little extra tiki-tiki kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of cool to have banjo in there because it's not gonna sound like everybody else's song. And I don't necessarily make it so you can even hear that it's banjo. It's just like, even if it's an EDM song, it's a layer. Right. If you got all these other synth layers playing, and then there's also a little banjo going, you know, going along there. So, there's the new secret for all you EDM producers. Real banjo, be, yeah, guaranteed hit. All you got to do is put it in there and sue us if I'm lying.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but then you also have some other. Not so, let's say, esoteric instruments, but a little bit more traditional. Because I've been fortunate enough to mess around with Nightfall, your latest offering. Ah, yeah, and I love that thing. And I'm I'm trying not to to gush and try to be all fanboy here, but that is a really, really cool application of more of of a sound design thing, I would say. Like, but centered around an orchestra. So for really like cinematic stuff, what made you come up with that instrument and how did you go about creating that? Because I imagine that there's a lot of layering, not just in the way that the instrument works, but how it has to sort of seamlessly blend and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. We're not giving away company secrets here, right? But yeah.
2: (laughs) There's not a lot of secrets to give away. A lot of my instruments are brute force instruments. Wow. They're, they're, um, you know, it's just that we spent the time doing this, that's, that's what a yeah. lot of it is. Like Realvox Ladies, no one's done anything like that. And it's not because they can't figure out what I did, it's just nobody else wants to spend the time recording that many women, that many articulations. Or Realvox Blue, which is a singer with a word builder where you can type in letters and she'll sing the words. Ooh. It's not magic, it's just we recorded 40,000 samples, something like that, Woo-hoo. in order to make it all work. Yeah, yeah it, it's just brute force. It pays off for me, and again, I love it. But Nightfall, is a little different in that it's based on Sunset Strings because we had released Sunset Mm -hmm. Strings a few years ago, which- enjoy that one as well. Thank you. That one was um, largely a, a library. The libraries that I make take a ton of time. In fact, I was just talking I imagine they about do, that. yeah. You know, it's like, you know, all the samples for Realvox Blue, or we did Hip Hop Creator, which took me three years to finish that library with help. And it wasn't nonstop for three years, but it was a ton of time. And then I'm, I have friends. I mean, the other developers are my friends, for the most part. Um, <laughs> and... And they're releasing these orchestral libraries and they're selling them for lots of money. And you know, it's, it's like, I'm thinking, well, you know what? I wanna do a strings library where all I do is I go into the studio, we record some strings. It's expensive to record, but we just record them. You do it in a few days, edit the samples, put them on the keyboard, done, sell it, here. Everybody wants to buy it, 300 bucks, give me your money. And there are at least say 500 people out there that will buy a strings library no matter how bad it is. That core group of people that mm, you know they right. have unlimited funds to do this—professional composers or you know serious hobbyists—so I'll get return on my investment. I'm just going to do this, and that's what we did with Sunset Strings. Except, of course, we went far further than what the original plan was, and it took way more than the one or two months that I wanted to do. It took about it about two years, maybe oh, a yeah. year and a half. I can't remember exactly, mm. but because you know we, it's the same two-layer system. And Sunset Strings also has attacks and releases. Right. Um, and we spent, it's like the recording process and stuff. It was pretty intense because we really wanted the right session. We were going to record it in Europe. No offense to our friends elsewhere in the world, but, you know, we realized LA to record it. it. It was advantageous. We recorded it at United Recording, which used to be Ocean Way on Sunset, and that's why it's called Sunset Strings. Okay. So we made that library, and although riella Banjo is our best-selling library in terms of quantity sold, mm-hmm. Sunset Strings is our biggest selling library in terms of total dollars sold. Right. It was just an unbelievable hit when we released it. 2021, 54% of Realtones' income was Sunset Strings. I mean, it's basically more than everything else combined for the year. Mm-hmm. Mind you, it was, it was new, but still, it's, it's just been really big for us. So we wanted to release some extra sounds for Sunset Strings that we were going to give people for free. Sunset Strings customers, it's like, thank you for your support. Here's some free sounds. Right. That's Nightfall. Oh. Um, we were going to do like four patches. <laughs> <but> <laughs> yeah, it turned into something <laughs> bigger. Something much bigger much than that. It, it turned into something much bigger. And part of the blame for this is that, you know, I have a couple of guys working for me, Jaden and Vincent. And they are more serious composers than I am. I mean, they're legit Really talented guys. I'm a rock and roll guy. I'm a pop guy. They're real composer guys and they have a better understanding than I do for what the composer market wants. Most of the ideas for sounds and stuff, it was them. And, you know, they're coming up with these ideas and we're doing them. And it's like, wow, these are cool ideas. I like this. This isn't me leading. (laughs) This is mostly them leading. You know, I'm leading the coding part and oh, we could make this work. And you know what, I could make the mod wheel do this and that, you know, all, all these kinds of things. That's my end of the thing. But conceptually and knowing, you know, what it is that we can do, that's on them. And it's been really interesting because Nightfall is not an instrument that I would have ever released. It's not my thing. I, when I say not my thing, I don't mean it's not something I like. I just mean it's not where my strength normally lies. I'm sure. 100%- It's not your go-to
1: on. in your workflow and what you what you write, yeah. It, in my workflow,
2: it would be if I did those kinds of shows mm-hmm. and I'll probably fit it in somewhere and some some things just because I know where all the little elements are. And knowing the library is a lot of why I use things. I just know where they are. Sure. But it's more a matter of these guys know better that here's where the, the composer market lives. And from a business standpoint, it's interesting because one thing that I learned with Hip Hop Creator, which is, it's like 100 bucks, 150 bucks, I don't remember what we sell it for, but that has obviously a mass appeal. It's a huge market that would be interested in Hip Hop Creator, in theory. Sunset Strings and Nightfall are really a composer's product. So that's a much, much narrower field. However, the Hip Hop Creator market is enormous but it's enormous in a crowd of people that don't want to spend any money on libraries. <laughs> you know, to right. them $10 or $20 for a sample pack, they'll think about that. Right. But $99 or $149 for a full instrument, that's not good. The vast majority of people that buy hip hop creator are over 50. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Yes. Huh.
2: With my Facebook ads, we can look up that information and it's you know, more than half or over 50. Hip hop creator, you know, you've got a larger potential audience, but a harder sell. Sunset strings and nightfall, you have a smaller potential audience, but it's an easy audience. Um, right. and, and I don't mean easy in, a, in, in an insulting way. I just mean easy in that they say, oh, that sounds really cool hundred bucks or 150 bucks or whatever, you know, Sunset Strings is, yeah, yeah, it's like, I'll just buy it. I mean, I got a gig that's paying me $3,000. So why do I, why am I going to argue over a $290 string library? So, and and it's been turning out that way with Nightfall too. It's just been amazing how well it's done, even better than I expected. I kind of thought, you know, Sunset Strings was going to be the golden one. And then Nightfall was going to be a subset of the Sunset String customer base. But it turns out, most people buying Nightfall right now have not bought Sunset Strings yet, which is a total surprise to me. There you go. And it's just doing really well. This business I have had, Nightfall is our 11th release. We don't you know, we don't release a lot of stuff and they're all just things that I think, would it be fun to try this next? Right. Yeah, that's what all our releases are. It's just been so much fun because of the different things and seeing what happens. And it's what I'm loving about this business. It's the fact that I started it you know, if, had I started doing this when I was 20 years old, I would hate it by now, <laughs> <laughs> but because it's still new to me right. and even making Facebook ads, that's new to me right now. So I'm making Facebook ads and I'm not always succeeding with them, but it's fun because I'm learning, you know, Hey, I'm going to try this. Oops, that didn't work. Right. <laughs> now I'll try this. Hey, that worked great. I'm I, not to go too far off a tangent, right. but I'll give you a Facebook example. With Hip Hop Creator, that one's heavily Facebook because Hip Hop Creator does not appeal to my mailing list. So, you know, I have to expand to people who would never normally know about Realitone. So we bought Hip Hop Creator Facebook ads and they did pretty well. It's like if I spent $100 in Facebook ads, I would sell $300 a product. So I'd make $200 profit for every $100 I'd spend, sure. which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, if I spend $100 a day and I make $200 a profit, how about if I spend... $1,000 a day and make $2,000 a profit. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you spend $1,000 a day and you make three or $400 a profit. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, it's sort of, there's a lot of things about Facebook advertising that you learn about the sweet spots, the size of your market, right. exhausting your market, you know, all these little things. The point being, I'm enjoying that. I was not happy to find out that I couldn't just scale my ads and you know, whatever <laughs> profit you're making, just <laughs> right. spend a million dollars a day and I'll make $2 million of profit. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: So here's a right. tech question for way. you in regards to Sunset Strings and obviously now Nightfall since they use the same original sampling. What sample rate are you recording at when you record those?
2: We recorded those either at 96 or 192. I don't remember... And the final result is is at 48. The, right. the library itself is 48. But I'm kind of conflicted on that because I've read a number of things, as I'm sure you guys have, mm-hmm. about whether it's better to record at a higher rate and then downsample at the end, or is it better to just record at the lower rate at the beginning? And I don't really know the answer to that question. But to answer what you asked me, we recorded, I think, at 96.
0: Okay. So here's the reason why I bring that up. 96K and 24 (laughs) or 32-bit. The reason why I bring this up is last week I had a excursion to Colorado to a little place called Rangeley. And there is a recording studio there called The Tank, which is an old steel water tower from the Rio Grande. And somebody has put a shipping container next to it for the control room, and then they have the big tank that you can record in. And the reverb in there is enormous, and it's like 20 hmm. seconds long. And it's, it was a lot of fun to go and experiment and record there, but I used Nightfall on this track where I went and recorded the guitar parts in this water silo. I was just kind of curious because we recorded all the guitar parts and I exported the track and I haven't done all the final mixing or exports of everything yet with from Nightfall and, and all that. But I recorded all the guitar tracks that I recorded in that place at 192. And I was just kind of curious because it's usually if you're going to upsample something, it doesn't help. But at the same time, because I was recording the guitar parts at that level, it would be kind of fun if it was possible to play them back at that level. I just don't know. That's yeah. why I was curious as to what you did with Sunset Strings.
2: You know, I don't know the answer to those questions either. Okay. Um, you know, it's like, there's the theory. I mean, to me, yeah. if you're recording at 96 and you want to downsample to 44.1, that's gonna be worse than downsampling to 48 because 96 is a multiple of 48. Sure. But apparently that's not true. <laughs> and I've seen the explanations for why it's not true, and it makes sense, but no, it's got to be true. Right. Yeah, it. <laughs> it's sort of like intuitively, i think thinking this, but logically, and I am a math guy, so it's like I understand the, the reasoning and the mathematics for why it actually doesn't make a difference whether you downsample to 48 or 44.1, other than that difference of 3.9K. Right. Forty-eight is a little bit better than forty-four-one in that regard. You know, there's all these explanations and the guys that are making these reasonings. They're not stupid guys. No, they're these are guys people. that, yeah. But some of them do have differing opinions. I think if we record another library, I think we'll record. Well, not if we are going to record another library, it will be at forty-eight. I think uh-huh. um, instead of you 96. mean your original
0: samples, not your, not your <clears throat> the final original bonus. samples.
2: Yeah, Nightfall is completely done at forty-eight. We didn't upsample. They might have used some source stuff that was at ninety six. Most of the tweaking was Jaden and Vincent, not mm-hmm. me. Some of it's me, but most of it's them. But the Sunset
0: Strings, Be- you think was done at ninety six?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it might have been one ninety two, okay. but I think it was ninety six because it was done at um, United. You know, they have a Pro Tools system there. You know, I'm trying to re- remember the reasons. We knew that we wanted to go high. You know, hard drive space does start to become an issue where you don't want to get too crazy with. You know how much space you're taking because we need to make backups, and Mm -hmm. you know making backups takes time, and and is it really worth it? It's like there's that trade-off factor. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. All right. Well, so so
0: we've been sitting here talking about the instruments and everything. Do you have something, Chris? Because I was gonna like segue this into what his favorite piece of gear is that he can't live without
1: yeah I, I do want to ask one question just to kind of get us back on the nerdy stuff here as well as much as i said before i'm not interested in gear and what people are using but i'm going to ask you now that you, you, since you do work for you know both tv and, and and some film commercials and all that kind of stuff you mentioned that you're a logic guy or maybe that was before we started well, recording here, but now you're also running a protest. What is your day-to-day sort of like recording rig look like? Where do you find that you do most of your work? I do
2: most of my work in Logic. Yeah. Um, I am not a power user. I don't know that I ever was. I could attest to but... that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was hired and brought in. <laughs> That's Don't be that guy, true.
1: Jody. Don't be that guy. <laughs> well,
2: you know what? I remember when Jody was here, he would show me things. And you know what? The same things happen when I've had guys here helping with coding. Right. I've had a couple guys. There was a guy named Azrul that was here. And he would do these things. You know, It's like I'd ask him to do this. And then I'd watch him as he's fixing something. I'd say, well, wait a minute. What did you just do as I'm watching him do stuff? And it's like, in some ways, I need to have people here more often to do the same things I'm doing just so I can watch what they do and learn. And figure out shortcuts or all these different things. I'm mostly using Logic. I'm not doing that many gigs anymore. So I'm not cranking out a lot of material. I'm actually more comfortable nowadays with Pro Tools because that's where we do our sample editing. And I've always loved Pro Tools. Logic is a far better sequencer. But Pro Tools, in my opinion, is a better DAW or a better, for the audio side of things, I'm more comfortable with it.
1: Is that primarily for the editing options that you have there? Or or is it Something else because I know that some people feel like the audio editing tools in Pro Tools are better. I'm personally on the belief that is whatever you get used to and that you're really comfortable with today, especially that's yeah, that's the best one for you, right? But is it something else that you feel is just better? For your workflow, or for the sample editing in Pro Tools as opposed to Logic,
2: I think it's better for my workflow. And mm. and I think it's I don't think that Pro Tools does anything that Logic couldn't do. It's just I know how to make Pro Tools look exactly how I want it to do. And sure. the truth is, I've used Pro Tools longer than I've used Logic right. because my first sequencer was Hybrid Arts Empty Track, and then I was on Studio Vision, and then I was on Digital Performer, and I think it was Studio Vision's where I could start using. Pro Tools, although it was just sound designer files then. I've been on Pro Tools longer than I've been on Logic because I'm a late, not a latecomer, but you know, Logic is not my first sequencer. Right. To me, there are advantages in Pro Tools. I don't know that those same advantages don't exist with other DAWs.
1: Jody and I often talk about on the podcast here. It's like today, whatever DAW that you go into, just you know, just work that, you know, because yeah. everything is so good today that right. it doesn't matter if you're using Bitwig, if you're on Ableton Live, if you're a Cubase user or digital performer or whatever it is. Like, just learn your tool and yeah. you'll be fine. You know, although, I think the days of. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. Now, now there's a Luna reference coming. <laughs> yes. So, uh, for
0: those that uh, have used Luna, And very specifically, Chris and I have both mentioned this or talked about it on the podcast in the past. The value of what a mix will sound like from different DAWs, generally speaking, there is no difference. However, I have done A-B blind tests with multiple people that are producers, mixing engineers, and just regular consumers. 100% of the time, everyone has picked the Luna mix.
2: Huh. So there's some something weird going. on They're going to fix that in the next update. Yeah, they're going to fix that in the (laughs) next (laughs) (laughs) update. Anyway,
0: moving on. Uh, So you're saying they would name their
2: audio files better than you know?
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? They do it just like (laughs) the new version of Logic. They put it into a project folder and then don't even give it any kind of actual name. It's a string of letters and numbers, and it's really frustrating. That's like the biggest downfall right now of Luna to me is just the file management is awful.
2: So you know what? I, ju- I just remembered now one of the reasons why we use Pro Tools so heavily with with Realitone is that before COVID, we actually had a lot of people that were here. There were like, I don't know, six employees. They were kind of scattered. It's like in the lobby, we had somebody and then the storage room I split and then the front office. So, there's like the two studios plus other places around the studio where people were working. And the advantage to Pro Tools is that I could bring in people, and no matter what they were working on, everybody can learn the basics of Pro Tools really quickly. So, by Pro Tools being what I use for Realitone, then everything can go from room to room without any problems. Because I think
1: the the standardized Sort of key commands and stuff. It's like you're saying, I think it's a real strength with that too, because it doesn't yeah. matter whose workstation you sit down at. It's going to yeah. be the same. I've done yeah. that when I used to go to Jody's studio when he was local here. And I had my heavily customized logic key commands, right? And it's like, why is this not happening? I'm, I'm pressing this key command, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, right. And then I wised up and I actually had a USB key with my key commands on it right? Yeah. So I get that from the, the Pro Tools aspect that it's like, if you know your key commands, it doesn't matter where you sit down. And I do agree that that is a strength where it certainly can be seen as a strength.
2: Sure. I never use custom key mic commands for that very reason. Because um, mm, yeah. I always fear going somewhere else where I'm not, where I don't know what it is. Yeah. There are exceptions yeah. to that. But for the sure. most part, I try and whatever the factory key commands. And that Piss me off when logic went from nine to 10, because yeah. a lot of those key commands got wiped out. <laughs> yep.
0: But you could always load your old key commands and you were just fine.
2: Yeah, but not when I go to your house. You know, or Chris's house, you yeah. know, it's, it's going to be, you yeah, know, you it's gotta not going to work commands so, with you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know how to do that. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so good at those things. <laughs> I'll be there in October. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: all right. So let's take a moment. We're going to actually get into the three questions that Chris and I like to ask each one of our guests and then we'll wrap things up. Sound good. Sounds good. All right, Mike. Our first question is favorite piece of gear that you can't live without.
2: Can I admit I cheated? Sure. I listened to your podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I knew these questions were coming. All right. So this
1: is the last time <laughs> these three questions will be, be asked, asked right? I guess.
2: <laughs> no, you, you, you no, need no, 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 go ahead. You need to stick to the questions so guys like me can think about it, because the hardest one, in my opinion, is the gear, because I don't know what the main gear that I couldn't live without is. And you
0: got a but wall of it behind you that we're looking at right now. I mean, there's a lot of rat gear piece <laughs> back
1: there. I, think I see like a, a Waldorf. I see, is that an old logic? No, looks like There's that. a mini Moog, a memory Moog. Oh, yeah, there's um, a lot of ooh, stuff. An Oberheim
2: worked. OBXA, yeah. a Prophet 5, Poly 6, Super ooh. Jupiter. There's a lot that, of stuff here. That yeah. is
1: sexy stuff. That but you know so when
2: nice. the last time I used any of them? A long time. So, <laughs> so, so I can't say that they're indispensable because I'm not actually using them. You're using the but, plugin versions, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm using plugins of everything. Yeah. Well, actually, we're we're going to release a Moog mini Moog plugin hopefully next year. Yeah, heard it's it already here. Recorded yeah, heard a lot it here. Is done. You heard it here. The thing that I decided, having oh. cheated and knowing this question is coming, okay. The thing that is indispensable to me is this room and these speakers. Oh. And it's not because this room is amazing, although the room is a good room in terms of tuning and stuff. And the speakers, they're Yuri Eight Thirteens. They're really big. They're also old they're not the best, they're not ATCs, they're not, you know, they're good speakers. But the thing about it is I know these speakers. Right. I listen to music, I've been listening to mixes on these speakers since 1992 when we built this studio. So it's like, I know the speakers so well that I can mix an instant, I don't even use near fields here anymore. There are no near mm-hmm. fields oh, in this so room. you just
0: mix on the big speakers.
2: I mix only on the big speakers. Mm. Mind you, I'm not getting paid to do mixes where people are wanting full on, here's a perfect mix. I'm right. mixing stuff that, you know, is getting sent as final mixes to TV shows or things like that. Right. But if I were doing records, then, you know, I might want to send it to a real mixer. You know, I know the room, I know the things, so I know when something's too bassy, I know when something's too trebly, I know when there's too much mid-room mud or, you know, things like that going on, so.
0: This harks so, back to our very first
1: episode. Know your gear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I'm mean, sorry to interrupt you there, Mike, but, but it oh. is such an important thing that when we're talking about mixing or it is knowing our environment and how you know you can't adjust or fix things that you can't hear. Yeah. So if you don't know that you have a giant 10 dB node at like hundred and fifty, you're gonna struggle to get your mixes to translate. Yeah. So I think that's a beautiful thing. And we had another guest, Adam Mosley, who also said, you know, one of his pieces of gear that he picked was his barefoot speakers. And Ah. again, just kind of knows them. And it's like, once you have that, then, well, half your battle's done, isn't it, really? Because you can trust what you hear. So I think that's that's a, a good one.
2: Except for I know these Yuris so well that there's not a point in having better speakers. Sure. Uh, That's a very arrogant thing to say, but- No, it's it's a
0: very real thing to say. It's like, yeah,
1: yeah, right.
0: For me, I actually kind of made a switch and we've mentioned this on the podcast before because I was on Genelec speakers for a very long time. I still have them, they're still sitting right here. I use them now more as a reference check But I don't use them on my day to day because I switched over to KRKs. I made the switch, even though I had been on Genelax for a very long time. So I still have them, but I'm with you on that. In that switching speakers after a very long time is like going to a whole new universe.
2: Yeah. Although in your case, you know, you're doing real mixes. If I were doing critical mixes, Mm -hmm. then I would be tempted to look into nicer speakers. But I'm I'm not. Well, the truth is I don't even edit samples here. <laughs> we we have somebody people else for that sort that. of <laughs> thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I but I'm listening to Final Product, but even with that, you know, I've got the Vincent and, and Jaden and those guys who they're listening more critically than I am. I'm more of, wow, that sounds great. I have backup
1: ears. I only need stuff to be close enough. Deviate a little bit because of something you said that when you deliver for TV. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in thinking that you don't necessarily have control of the end product because they might tweak things a little bit before broadcasting, that kind of thing? Or do you find that generally the mix that you deliver is what actually goes out? I send out a mix. I don't send stems even on the
2: shows I do. Mm -hmm. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've sent stems Mm. for a TV show. I've also had times where I've called up a client and said, you know, I haven't heard back whether or not you, you know, like the... Last version of the you know theme or whatever that I sent you, maybe not theme, but for commercials and stuff. Sure. It's just, oh, we already printed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the words so, you want to hear. That's the phrase that's golden. Yeah, except for what I sent them was an MP3. Oh, even. Oh, oh, no, <laughs> you're joking. Yeah. And, oh. and it's sort of, and MP3s that I send. I mean now you know, after I fell for this a few times, now I try and send them at a higher rate, but I'd send MP3s at low rates. So they emailed easy, you know, at 293 or 283. I don't remember what the rate is, but, Mm -hmm. you know, now I try and do 320 or sometimes higher when I send MP3s just in case, because it's more than once that they'll just roll with, you know, TV is, is a even higher end TV is not a There are some that they get mixed on stages. Sleeper Cell was one of those, you know, where they're they're mixed in these big theaters and professional engineers and all that other kind of stuff. But commercials and a lot of lower budget TV, it's done in home studio kind of environments. That's exactly
0: Um, the Kimmel show. I mean, the guy that mixes that, he's in a box room. And it was kind of surprising to see the room that he was in. Yeah,
2: <laughs> but it, yeah,
0: it, you know they're doing it live. They're doing it quick and dirty, and that's how they do it, and it gets done.
2: But yeah, yeah. wow. Sending well, they got to like, do five of those a week. Yeah. <laughs> so so his job isn't uh, you know okay let's rack up the union hours on this. Sure.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question. Biggest lesson that you have learned. Again, I cheated. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I have a the the one thing I
2: decided to go with here. I'm not sure it's the biggest lesson I've learned, but it's something that I think could be valuable, is to not believe all the advice that you get. Because I came up in this business wanting to be a rock star, wanting to produce rock records, wanting to get my songs placed onto real records and stuff, and then wanting to get good TV shows. I've always wanted to keep rising. No matter where you are, I'm really happy with my career, but wherever you are, you always wanna get higher. Of course. So back in the days, there would be LA songwriter showcase or there'd be film music network or all these different events that would be happening around Los Angeles. Honeypot. were up and coming. I'm sorry? Honeypot was one of them. I you know, that one I didn't know. Oh, okay. I, I wish I had because I love going to all these events. It sure. was just kind of fun because you're hanging out with other producers, other composers, other songwriters, whatever it would be. And a lot of these events, there would be people there from the industry, the people that you're trying to pitch to, Mm -hmm. who would be given advice. They'd be telling stories about what they've done and this and that. A lot of advice that they've given is, in my opinion, not good. (laughs) Um, Because their goal is different than my goal. Their goal is to make their life easy. Mm. My goal is to get my music on your record label or on your TV show. One time where there was this A&R guy, not gonna name him, mostly because I don't remember what his name was. (laughs) But he tells this story about how a band had hired a stripper to deliver the demo. The stripper shows up to the record label, shows up to their offices. She does this little strip show. When she's all done, she hands him the demo tape or CD, whatever it was, and then she leaves. And he's telling us that this kind of gimmick is not a good idea, it doesn't work and you know in this particular case he listened to this cd the band wasn't that good total <laughs> waste of money right so everybody in the around me is like writing this down don't gimmicks stupid gimmicks don't use gimmicks stripper bad don't do that <laughs> but i'm thinking hold on a minute you just said you listened to their cd exactly you didn't yeah. listen to my cd you didn't, <laughs> didn't listen to Jody's CD or Chris's and, CD, but you listened okay. to their CD. Exactly. So you it know it, it, it's it's it
1: works. And he's it telling doesn't... the story years later. Exactly. So yeah, right.
2: And I was struck mostly not by my genius because I think you guys saw through it the same way I did. Mm-hmm. But everybody around me writing this down. This is gospel. This guy's telling us. You know, don't it's like do oh this. don't 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 do gimmicks. But the truth is you know if i can send something in and i send it in in a pink envelope or whatever i think it's going to get the attention i'm going to do it yeah. i'll give you one more example of this not that you're asking for it but i'm going to give it to you <laughs> do it please <laughs> we were at this thing and it was a um this was for composers and it was music supervisors and they're all telling us the same thing it's you know don't be calling us with you know it's like send in your stuff we're going to get back to you And they're all saying this, and they're saying, you know, it's like, well, how long should we wait before we do call you? Because we don't usually hear back. It says, oh, maybe two or three months, because it takes us a long time to get back to you. And (laughs) there's not really a punchline to this story, but it's- No. (laughs) Don't wait two or three months to call call them back. You send the stuff in and I'm going to call within a few days. Hey, did you get the thing? Even if it's to talk to the receptionist to ask that question. Sure. You want to be in their heads. It's kind of realizing that the gatekeepers do not have the same goal that I have. Exactly. Um, in, In
0: light of what you just said about that in doing something strange or weird, I had an experience with Fox Sports. Where uh, I went in, the head of the music department listened to my music while I was there. Uh, and the question came out is, does this sound right to you? And that came right on the heels of another question that said, where did you record this? And of course, I said, I recorded it in a studio. And I said, no, it does not sound right. What had happened was his speakers were wired out of phase. <laughs> so i recognized the fact that that was the case so we went behind his stereo setup in his office and i rewired the speakers so that they were correctly wired
2: he you plays- want to flip both so you can be sure that they're in phase. <laughs> exactly <laughs> flip the face right back to the other side
0: so <laughs> i make double sure that they're now wired properly he plays it again and he's like oh my god this stuff sounds great let's do a deal but I wonder how many people sent or sat in that office with music that yeah. did not get the gig because they didn't know and he didn't know.
2: Yeah. Because
0: yeah. that just, that blows my mind. <laughs> anyway.
2: I think it happens all the time. I'm sure I remember it does. Some, I remember once somebody, when I was doing a, um, revisions for a, a commercial, it was on Mattel. I don't remember what the product was. But the guy you know said, yeah, it sounds too muffled. So I I sent him not a tape but a couple of Q-tips. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. All
0: right. That was a
2: risky move, but yes, he he, no he laughed and then he listened again because yeah. what I wanted him to do is is I know that tape is good. Right. Play the damn tape again. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And and he did. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. you know what, <laughs> sounds like not a that
0: disappointing I- ending. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. All right, all right, Jody.
0: <laughs> Let's not go down that can of disappointment. Let's go with the advice you universally will give others as our final question.
2: Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you two. They're okay. both short. Great. The first one is always be recording. When I'm here recording songs, not commercials and stuff, if it's commercials and it's professional singers, then, you know, I can work in a really consistent way. They're okay. singers, they're not shy, they're not, oh, do I sound good? None of those issues. But if I'm recording an artist, the first time they go behind the microphone, they're nervous. So what I'll tell them is, I'm not recording right now, I just need to get level on the microphone, I need to make sure that you know it's loud enough and all this kind of stuff, and I gotta do this, I gotta EQ and stuff. So we're just gonna roll through the song, you just sing the song along, I don't care if you sing it in tune, out of tune, whatever, sing it as bad, whatever, I just need to get level on it. Exactly. And I think you know where I'm going with You're this. You're lying <laughs> your ass off. <laughs> I am in record. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of times it's going to be good. And even if it's not, what difference does it make? Yep. But yep. there's a lot to be said for when a singer does not think that they're the being recorded. Yeah. yeah. So, but another thing that that I'll go with that has to do again with, it's along the same lines as the gatekeepers are not necessarily your friends. And that is persistence has paid off in that going back, the first song that I ever had a gold record with was a song that we wrote, um, went on a Vanessa Williams album, on her first album. And our publisher, it actually wasn't us, so I can't take credit for this story, but our publisher sent the song to them because they knew she was gonna have, she you know she had just been on the Miss America and had all that kind of stuff, but it was, you know and then Penthouse and all that. But they sent our song to her for the album, they rejected it. And the publisher thought, you know what? This song is really good for them. We're gonna send it again. They sent it again, rejected. The singer who sang the demo on the thing wanted to get a record deal. So she sent a package of her songs to this label. I think it was Virgin. And they said, no, you're, you're not really what we're looking for. But what's that one song that's on there? So, <laughs> oh,
0: man.
2: so the point being, they rejected this song twice. And they wound up taking it. Part of the story is that they took it not in context of how they were supposed to be taking it. But sometimes when you know something's right, like sending Q-tips to the guy who thinks that your <laughs> tape is muffled right. sounding, then it's worth trying again. Don't give up. You know, I, I think the songwriting environment is different than it was when I was doing this. So, I, so I, I'm not exactly sure how this story applies today. If you have a good song, the truth is, you know, if you're songwriting, it's not like you've got a hundred songs ready to go for everything. You've got your four really good songs. And this was a really good song to us. We didn't, you know, it's like, if we're gonna be pitching songs, here's the songs we're gonna pitch. It's only right. a handful. Right. So it's to pitch again. It's to, you know, if you feel good about it, don't just walk away. You don't wanna be a jerk, but it doesn't hurt to try it again. Sure. Sounds like
0: good sage Wise advice works. right there.
2: Yeah. All right. So
0: <laughs> well, since thank you so much. You, well, for- hold on. Before we do the okay. thank yous here, because since you have done your homework— Did you come prepared with a Friday find?
2: You know, the problem is I don't buy anything anymore. I'm not producing any music. The last TV show I did was Real Justice. That was a year ago. You know what? I can't come up with one.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for being here with us, Mike. Really appreciate it. you sharing your stories and your sage advice here. And thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you again for coming on. It's been an awful long time since I actually did any work in that studio, but it is burned <laughs> in my mind as to the place that you have for that studio. It's an amazing big place that you have. Thanks. You're welcome. All right, we're going to do our Friday Finds. Chris, kick it off. What do you got?
1: Well, there's been a lot of new software and gear coming out here, but I'm going to go off the board because I just reacquainted myself with an amazing album this week and that's the toy matinee mm. album never mind just the songs and stuff but the production on that is absolutely amazing and it's kind of crazy to think that it came out in 1990 A scary so thought. that's you know that it does not sound 32 years old you know what I mean Oh, man. So that has to be my, my Friday find this week, the, the uh, album from Toy Matinee. Gotcha. What about you? I'm going with
0: something that makes me feel like I spoke too soon in the episode about sidechaining. Because as okay. of yesterday, I believe it was, Universal Audio went and released an update to Luna. Luna now includes sidechaining. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so they finally got on that bandwagon. There's my Friday find. It's the update to Luna. It ha- it includes side chaining,
1: and there it is. And just like we discussed in that episode, that you will now do side chaining in every mix every
0: single parties. one. There's no doubt. It's yeah. it's,
1: it's a given. <laughs> While we've right.
0: got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll get weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word Realitone and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say, see you next week.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you later, guys.